This story is brought to your ears by all our fantastic supporters on Patreon. To get in on the action yourself with bloopers, extras, and the occasional early story, join us at patreon.com slash voiceofallmtg. For more stories or just a chat, visit voiceofallmtg.com. And now, Voice of All is excited to present Children of the Nameless. Part one of three of a novella by Brandon Sanderson. There were two kinds of darkness, and Tisenda feared the second far more than the first. The first darkness was a common darkness, the darkness of shadows, where light strained to reach, the darkness of a closet door cracked open, or of the old shed near the forest. This first darkness was the darkness of dusk, which seeped into homes as night arrived like an unwelcome visitor you had no choice but to let in. The first darkness had its dangers, particularly in this land where shadows breathed and dark things howled at night. But it was the second darkness, the one that came upon Tessenda each morning, that she truly feared. Her blindness was tied directly to the rising of the sun. As its first light appeared, her sight would fade away. The second darkness would then claim her, a pure, unescapable blackness. Despite the reassurances of parents and priests alike, she knew that something terrible watched her from that darkness. Her twin sister, Willia, understood. Willia's curse was the inverse of Tessenda's. Willia had sight during the day, but was claimed by the second darkness each night. There was never a time when both of them could see. And so, though twins, the girls were never able to look one another in the eyes. As she grew, Tessenda tried to banish her fear of this second darkness by learning to play music. She told herself that at least she could still hear. Indeed, while blind, she felt that she could better hear the natural music of the land, the crunch of pebbles beneath a footstep, the vibrant trembles of laughter when a child passed by her seat at the center of town. At times, Tessenda even felt she could hear the stretching of ancient trees as they grew, a sound like the twisting of a rope, accompanied by the gentle sigh of their settling leaves. She did wish she could see the sun, even once. A giant, blazing, burning ball of fire in the sky, brighter even than the moon? She could feel its intense heat on her skin, so knew it was real, but what must it be like for everyone else to go about their lives, seeing that incredible bonfire in the sky bearing down on them? The people of the village learned of the girl's inverse curses and noted them as marked. It was the bog's touch upon them, the people whispered. A good thing. It meant the twin girls had been claimed. Blessed. Descenda had trouble feeling it was a blessing until that first day when she found her true song. While still a child, the people of the village bought her drums from a traveling merchant so she could sing to them while they worked the dust willow fields. They said the darkness among the trees seemed to retreat when she sang, and they claimed the sun shone brighter. 
on one of those days, Tessenda discovered a power within her and began to sing a beautiful, warming song of joy. Somehow, she knew it had come from the bog, a gift along with her curse of blindness. Willia whispered that she too felt a power inside her, a strange, awesome strength. When she fought with a sword, though only twelve years old, she could match even Barl the smith. Willia was always the fierce one, at least during the daylight hours. At night, when the second darkness took her, she trembled with a fear that Tessenda knew intimately. During those long nights, Tessenda sang to her sister, a girl who was terrified, against reason, that this time the light would not return to her. It was one such night, soon after their thirteenth birthdays, that Tessenda discovered another song. It came to her as a thing from the forest clawed at the door, howling and raving. Beasts sometimes came from the forest at night, breaking into homes, taking those who dwelled inside. It was the price of living out in the approaches. The land demanded attacks upon one's blood. There was little to do but bar your door and pray to either the bog or the angel, depending upon your preference, for deliverance. But on that night, listening to her sister panic and her parents weep, Tessenda had stepped toward the beast as it broke in. She'd heard music in the cracking and splintering door, in the breeze rattling the trees, in her own heartbeat as it thundered in her ears. She opened her mouth and sang something new, a song that made the beast scream in pain and withdraw, a song of defiance, a song of warding, a song of protection. The next night, the village asked her to sing her song into the darkness. Her music seemed to still the woods. From that day forward, nothing came from the forest. The village, once the smallest of the three in the approaches, began to swell as people heard of its twin protectors the fierce warrior who trained during the day, and the quiet songstress who calmed the night. For two years, the village knew a remarkable peace. No people taken during the night. No beasts howling to the moon. The bog had sent guardians to shelter its people. Nobody even took much notice when a new lord, who called himself the Man of the Manor, arrived to displace the old one. The squabbles among lords were not for the common people to question. Indeed, this new man of the manor seemed to keep to himself an improvement upon the old lord. So they'd thought. But then, just after the twins turned fifteen, everything went wrong. The whispers arrived just before dusk, and to send a song was not enough to stop them. She screamed the refrain of the warding song, sliding her hands across the strings of her vial, a gift from her parents at her fourteenth birthday. Her parents were both gone now, killed ten days earlier by the strange creatures that now assaulted the village. Tessenda had barely recovered from that grief when they'd taken Willia too. Now they'd come for the entire village. 
Since the sun had not yet set, she couldn't see them, but she could hear their quiet, overlapping voices as they flowed around her seat. They spoke in raspy tones, soft, the words indistinguishable, like an underchant to her song. She redoubled her efforts, plucking her vial with raw fingers, sitting in her usual spot at the center of the village by the gurgling cistern. The song should have been enough. For two years, it had stopped every terror and horror. The whispers, however, sounded indifferent as they flowed around Tacenda. And soon, human screams of terror rose as a horrible chorus around her. Tacenda tried to sing louder, but her voice was growing hoarse. She coughed at her next breath. She gasped, trembling, struggling to... Something cold brushed her. The pain in her fingers grew numb, and she gasped, leaping back, clutching her vial to her breast. All was black around her, but she could hear the thing nearby, a thousand whispers overlapping, like riffling pages, each as hush as a dying breath. When it moved off, ignoring The rest of the villagers were not so lucky. They had locked themselves in their homes, where now they shouted, prayed, and pled. Until one by one, they started to go silent. Tacenda! Tacenda, help! Mirian? Which direction had that sound come from? Tacenda spun in the darkness, kicking over her stool with a clatter. Tacenda! There. Tacenda carefully ran her foot along the side of the cistern to feel its carved stones and orient herself, and then struck out into the darkness. She knew this area well, and it had been years since she'd stumbled when crossing the village square. But still, she could not avoid that spike of fear she felt in stepping forward, out into that darkness that still terrified her. This time, would she walk into the void and never return? Would she continue to stumble in a vast, unknowable blackness, lost to all natural feeling and touch? Instead, she reached the wall of a home, right where she'd anticipated. She felt with raw fingers, touching the windowsill, feeling Mirian's potted herbs in a row, one of which, in her haste, she accidentally knocked off. It chattered on the cobbles. Mirian! Tacenda felt her way across the wall. Other screams still sounded in the village, some people crying for help, others shouting in a panic. Together, the sounds were a tempest, but each seemed so alone. Mirian? Why is your door open? Mirian? Descenda felt her way into the small home, and then stumbled over a body. Tears wetting her cheeks, Descenda knelt, still holding her vial in one hand. With the other, she felt at the lace skirt, embroidered by Mirian's own hand, during the evenings when she sometimes stayed up to keep Descenda company. She moved her hand to the woman's face. Mirian had brought Descenda tea not an hour ago, and now her skin had already gone cold somehow, her body rigid. Descenda dropped her vial and pushed away, slamming back against the wall, knocking something over. The fallen item cracked as it hit the ground, an almost musical sound. Outside, the last screams were giving out. 
Take me! Tessenda felt her way round the door. She scraped her arm on a sharp corner, tearing her skirts, blooding her forearm. Take me like you did my family! She stumbled out into the main square again, and as more of the shouting and panic trailed off, she picked out a quieter voice. A child's voice. Aurin! Is that you? No. Pog, hear my prayer. Please. Aurin! Tessenda followed the small, panicked screaming to another building. The door was locked, but that didn't seem to stop the whisperers. They were spirits or geists of some sort. Tessenda felt her way to the window, where she heard a small hand pounding on the glass. Aurin! Tessenda rested her own palm against the glass. A coldness brushed past her. Tessenda! Please! It's coming! She drew in breath and tried, through her sobs, to force out a song. But the warding song wasn't working. Maybe... maybe something else? Simple... Simple days of warming, son. She began trying her old song, the joyful one she'd sung to her sister and the people of the village when she'd been a child. And night comes and won't run. She found the words dying on her lips. How could she sing about a warm sun she could no longer see? How could she try to calm, to bring joy, when people were dying all around her? That song. She no longer remembered that song. Aaron's crying stopped as a muted thump sounded inside the building. Outside, the final screams died off, and the village grew silent. Tessenda shrank back from the window, and then behind her, she heard footsteps. Footsteps. She spun toward the footsteps and heard the rustling cloth of someone nearby, watching her. I hear you! Man of the manor! I hear your footsteps! She heard breathing. The sounds, even, of the whispers faded away. But whoever was there, watching, remained still. Take me! Be done with it! The footsteps, instead, retreated. A cold, lonely breeze blew through the village. Tessenda felt the last rays of sunlight give out, the air chilling. As night fell, Tessenda's vision returned. She blinked as the blackness retreated to mere shadows, the sky still faintly warm from the sun's recent passing like the embers that clung briefly to a wick after the fire went out. Tessenda found herself standing near the cistern, her face a mess of tears and tangled brown hair. Her precious vial lay, wood finish scratched, just inside the door to Mirian's house. The village was silent. Empty, save for Tessenda and corpses. Tessenda spent about half an hour breaking into homes, searching in vain for survivors. Even those families who had fled to the church had fallen. She confronted corpse after corpse, the light gone from their eyes and the warmth stolen from their blood. Her parents had suffered the same fate ten days before. 
They, along with Willia, had been on their way to deliver offerings to the bog. The man of the manor had intercepted them and attacked, his reasons unfathomable. He'd overpowered Willia, who, despite her uncommon strength, had been no match for his terrible magic. Willia had escaped and run to the priory for help. When she'd returned with church soldiers, they'd found only two corpses. Her parents, their bodies already cold. That night, also, the Whispers had first appeared. Strange, twisted geists who killed those who strayed from the villages. Witnesses swore they worked under the direction of the man of the manor. Even then, Tacenda had hoped for deliverance, hoped the bog would protect them, until the man of the manor had finally come for Willia, killing her. And now, and now, Tacenda slumped on the Weimer family's doorstep, head in her hands, lit by aloof moonlight. The priests and Willia had wanted to give her parents a church burial, but Tacenda had insisted that their bodies be returned to the bog. Priests could teach of the angels all they wanted, but most approachers knew that they belonged, ultimately, to the bog. But who would return all these corpses to the bog? The entire village! Suddenly, it seemed the eyes of all those corpses were watching her. With an aching hand, Tacenda felt at her sister's pendant, which she wore around her wrist. The simple leather cord bore an iron icon of the nameless angel. It and her vial were the only important things left in her life. So there was no reason to remain here beneath those watchful, dead eyes. Feeling numb, Tacenda took up her vial and just started walking. She wandered out of the town, past the dust willow field where Willia's corpse had been found. On that day, well, the piece of Tacenda had gone cold. Perhaps that was why, now that it was done, she found herself too tired for tears. She walked out into the dark forest, a place where no sane person went. To travel the forest at night was to demand mishap, to invite getting lost or open yourself to the fangs of some lurking beast. But why would that matter to her now? Her life was meaningless, and she couldn't get lost if she wasn't planning to ever return. Still, when she closed her eyes, she could sense where the darkness was more pure. Almost it had the feeling of that second darkness that she feared. A few years ago, she'd met a blind girl from the township, visiting with merchants. Willia had been so excited to speak to someone else who might understand the second darkness. But this girl had reacted with confusion to their descriptions. She didn't fear the darkness and couldn't understand why they would. It was then that Tacenda had truly begun to understand. The thing they saw when the curse took them was something deeper, stranger, something more than just blindness. She went toward the darkness, her skirt catching on underbrush, passing trees so ancient she'd have surely lost track counting the rings. On many a night, these trees had been Tacenda's only audience, the wind in their leaves her applause. 
The rest of the village had slept the fitful, uncertain sleep of a lamp with too little oil. If you woke up gasping for breath, well, at least you had woken up alive. The endless canopy, pierced here and there by steel moonlight, seemed to be the sky itself, held up by the dark columns of trees extending into infinity like reflections of reflections. She walked a good half hour, but nothing came for her. Perhaps the monsters of the forest were simply too stunned to see a lone girl of fifteen wandering at night. Soon, she could smell the bog. Rot, moss, and stagnant things. It had no name, but the villagers all knew that it claimed them. The bog was their protection, because even the things that terrorized in the dark reaches of the forest, even nightmares made incarnate, even they feared the bog. And yet, it failed us tonight. Descenda emerged into a small clearing. She knew the bog's sound as she knew her own heartbeat, a low rumbling like that of a boiling pot, punctuated by the occasional snap, reminiscent of a breaking bone. She'd come many times with her parents, bringing offerings, but for all that, she'd never been to it during the night. It was smaller than she had imagined, a perfectly circular pool filled with dark water. Though the ground in this region of the forest was pitted with mires and treacherous swamps, this specific pool had always been known as the bog to her people. Descenda stepped right up to the edge, remembering the soft sound, not quite a splash, more a sigh her parents' bodies had made when they'd been slid into the water. You didn't need to weigh bodies down when feeding them to the bog. Corpses sank in and did not return. She teetered on the edge of the pool. She'd been born to protect her people, possessing a warding power unseen in generations. But she had failed in that duty tonight, and even the whisperers hadn't wanted her. All that remained was to join her parents slip down under those two still waters. It was her fate. No. A voice seemed to whisper from deep within her. No, this was not why I created you. She hesitated. Was she mad now, too? Hey. Hey, what's this? A garish, intruding light flared up and bathed the area around the bog. To send a turn to find an old man standing in the door of the caretaker's shack. He held up a lantern and bore a scruffy beard, mostly gray, though his arms still had some tone to them and his stance was strong. Rom had been a werewolf hunter once, before he'd come to the approaches to live at the priory. Mr. Sender? He practically fell over himself, scrambling to reach her. Here, now, away from that child! What's wrong? Why aren't you at Verlawson singing? I... Seeing someone alive stunned her. Wasn't... Wasn't the entire world dead? They came for us, Rom. The Whisperers. He pulled her away from the bog toward the shack. It was a safe place, protected by the wards of a priest. 
Of course, those same wards hadn't protected the villagers tonight. She didn't know what was safe and what wasn't any longer. Priests from the Priory took turns here, in this shack, watching. Recently, they'd been trying to forbid the people from bringing the bog offerings. The priests didn't trust the bog and thought that the people of the approaches needed to be disabused of their ancient religion. But an outsider, even a kindly one like Rom, could never understand. The bog wasn't merely their religion. It was their nature. What's this, child? Rom settled her on a stool inside the small caretaker's shack. What happened? They're gone, Rom. All of them. The geists that took my parents. My sister. They came in force. They took everyone. Everyone? What about Sister Gudenvala at the church? Tsenda shook her head, feeling numb. The whisperers got in past the wards. She looked up at him. The man of the manor. He was there, Rom. I heard his footsteps, his breathing. He led the whisperers and took everyone, leaving nothing but dead eyes and cold skin. Rom fell silent. Then he hurriedly took a sword from beside the shack's small cot and strapped it on. I need to get to the Priorus. If the man of the manor is really... Well, she'll know what to do. Let's go. She shook her head. She felt exhausted. No. Rom tugged her, but she remained seated. Hellfire, child. He looked out the door, toward the bog, and then narrowed his eyes. The prayers on this shack should protect you from the worst things in the forest. But if those geists can get into the church... The Whisperers don't want me anyway. Stay away from the bog. You promise me that, at least. She nodded, feeling numb. The aging warrior priest took a deep breath, and then lit her a candle before seizing his lantern and heading out into the night. He'd follow the road, which would take him past Verlossen. He'd see for himself then. Everyone was gone. Everyone. To send a sat looking out at the bog. And slowly, she started to feel something again. A warmth rising within her. A fury. There would be no repercussions for the man of the manor. Rom could complain to the prioress all he wanted, but the man, the new lord of this region, was beyond condemnation. The priests had no real power to stand up to him. They might shout a little, but they wouldn't dare do more for fear of being exterminated. The people of Verlossen's two sister villages would turn their heads and continue with life, hoping that the man would be sated with those he'd already killed. Dangers from the forest were one thing, but the true monsters of this land had always been the lords. Flush with anger, Descenda began rummaging in the small shack. Rom had taken the only real weapon, but she did find a rusty ice pick in the old icebox. It would do. She snuffed the candle, then stepped back out into the moonlight. The bog rumbled approvingly as she started along the roadway that led to the manor. This was a foolish kind of defiance, she knew. The man would undoubtedly murder her. He would torture her, use her corpse in some 
terrible experiment, feed her soul to his demons. She went anyway. She wasn't going to throw herself into the bog. That was not her fate. She was at least going to try to kill the man of the manor. The man of the manor had arrived two years ago, just after Tessenda discovered the warding song. He had immediately removed the previous ruler of the approaches, a creature known as Lord Vast. Nobody had shed tears at Vast's apparent death. He'd often taken too much blood from the young women he visited at night. At least he'd never claimed the lives of an entire village in one day. Tessenda crouched at the perimeter of the manor grounds, looking in at the stately building. A two-red light shone from the windows. The man of the manor was known to consort with demons. Indeed, the front roadway was lined with winged statues that, as she watched their shadowed forms, occasionally twitched. She clutched the ice pick close, her vial strapped to her back. The rear of the building would have a servant's entrance. Her father had spoken of delivering shirts there. Feeling exposed, Descenda left the forest and crossed the lawn. The moonlight seemed garish and bright. Could the sun really be brighter than it was? She reached the side of the manor, her heart thundering in her chest, ice pick held like a dagger. She leaned against the wooden wall, then inched along it to the south. A glow came from that direction. And were those... voices? She reached the back corner of the building, and then glanced around to see an open doorway. The servant's entrance, spilling light across the lawn in a rectangle. Her breath caught. A group of small, red-skinned creatures chattered here, just outside the door. As tall as her waist, the misshapen devils had long tails and wore no clothing. They dug in a barrel of rotten apples, throwing the fruit at one another. Those apples. They'd be from last month's orchard harvest, sent to the man of the manor as required. The villagers had given him the best picks, but judging by how full the barrel was, the fruit had been left to molder. Jacinda ducked back around the corner, breathing quickly, her hand trembling. She squeezed her eyes shut, listening to the creatures jabber in their guttural, twisted language. She'd often heard terrible sounds from the forest, but to see such creatures directly was a different matter. She forced herself to move, trying to open a few windows along the wall. Unfortunately, each was latched tight, and breaking one would draw attention. That left the front gates or the door with the creatures at the back. She crept back to the corner and forced herself to glance at the things again. The four of them squabbled over a somewhat whole apple. Tessenda took a deep breath and sang the warding song. She kept it soft, just a quiet, low chant, though her vial responded to the music, vibrating as it often did if she didn't start playing it when she sang. The song made warmth rise within her, passion and pain together. 
The music came through her more than out of her. Tonight, it seemed particularly vibrant, alive, more so than she was. The devils froze, and their black eyes widened as if dazed. They leaned back, lips parting, exposing two sharp teeth. And then, blessedly, they scrambled away, screeching softly and seeking the forest. The song wanted to grow, wanted to burst from her more loudly. Tosenda cut it off instead, then breathed out, gasping softly. The music made her feel. It pulled her from the waters, soggy and cold, and somehow breathed life into her. But how could she feel anything save anger and sorrow? Focus on the task at hand. Ice pick held before her, she slipped through the back doors of the manor and stepped into a corridor that felt too welcoming with its thick rug and ornate wooden trim. This was the home of a monster. She did not trust its friendly facade any more than she'd trust a little girl found deep in the forest, smiling and promising treasure. Footsteps creaked the wooden floor in a room nearby. Certain that some horror would burst out and grab her, Tacenda took the nearby steps up to the second floor. Indeed, a moment after she stilled herself, something with dark gray skin stepped into the hallway. The enormous creature's horns brushed the ceiling, and it stepped with heavy footfalls. Anxious, Tacenda watched it inspect the area outside the back door. It had heard, or perhaps just felt, her song. She needed to get out of sight. She slipped into the first room she found on the second floor, a bedchamber, judging by the moonlit canopy beside the window. She crossed the chamber to a door at the side, and then slipped into a lavish washroom with a tub that could have bathed an entire family. She shut the door, enclosing herself in a common sort of darkness, one she found almost welcoming, familiar at the very least. Here, the tension of the moment finally overwhelmed her. She sat down on a stool in the darkness, ice pick held against her breast, her hand trembling. Her vial started to thrum softly on her back, and she realized she'd begun humming to try to calm herself, and stopped abruptly. She instead felt for her sister's pendant, which she'd taken before surrendering Willia's body to the priests. Willia had trusted in the angels. She'd always been the stronger one, the warrior. She should have lived while Tessenda died. Willia would have had a chance at actually killing the man of the manor. They'd always relied on one another. During the days, Willia had encouraged Tessenda, led her out to the fields to sing for the workers. And at night, Tessenda had sung while Willia shivered. Together, they'd been one soul. And now, Tacenda had to try to live alone? Voices. Tacenda bolted upright in the darkness. She could hear voices approaching, one of them sharp, authoritarian. She knew that voice. She had heard it when the man of the manor had come, shrouded in his cloak and mask, to complain about her father's shirt delivery two months ago. Footsteps sounded on the boards outside, the creaking of old and tired wood. 
Tacenda scrambled to her feet and placed herself right inside the door. A jolt of panic ran through her as that door opened, spilling light into the washroom. And then, then peace. It was time. Vengeance. She leaped out of the shadows and raised her makeshift weapon at the man, a domineering figure with a pencil mustache, dark, slicked-back hair, and a black suit. The ice pick made a satisfying thunk as she slammed it directly into his left breast, just to the side of his violet cravat. The pick ground bone as it sank in deeply. The man froze. She seemed to have genuinely surprised him, judging by the look of shock on his face. His lips parted, but he didn't move. Could she... Could she have pierced his heart? Could she have actually managed to... Miss Highwater, there is a peasant girl in my washroom. What does she want? She has stabbed me with what appears to be an ice pick. The man shoved Tacenda back into the washroom and then yanked the pick out. The length glistened with his blood. Ugh, a rusty ice pick. Nice. Ask how much I owe her. Tacenda gathered her courage, her fury, and stood up straight. I'd come for vengeance! You must have known that I would after you- Oh, hush, you. His eyes clouded briefly, as if filling with blue smoke. Tacenda tried to lunge for him, but found herself magically frozen in place. She strained, but couldn't so much as blink an eye. Quick as that, her confidence evaporated. She'd known all along that coming here would be suicide. She'd hoped to exact some kind of vengeance, but he didn't seem to be in pain from the wound. He tossed his jacket onto a chair in the bedroom and then prodded the small, bloodied section of his ruffled white shirt. The woman, who'd spoken earlier, finally stepped into the room, and woman might have been a misnomer. The creature wore human clothing, a fitted gray jacket over a simple, knee-length skirt, and wore her black hair in a bun. But she had ashen gray skin and dark red eyes, with small horns peeking up through her hair. Another of the man's demonic minions. The demon tucked a ledger under her arm and walked over to peek in on Tacenda. Again, Tacenda tried to struggle, but couldn't budge from her former posture, standing up straight to challenge the man. Curious. She can't be older than sixteen, younger than most of your would-be assassins. The man poked at his wound again. It strikes me, Miss Highwater, that you are not treating the situation with the gravity it deserves. My shirt is ruined! We'll get you another. This one was my favorite. You have 37 exactly like it. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference if your life depended on it. That's not the point! 37? That's a tad excessive even for me. You asked me to see you properly stocked in case the tailor got eaten. The demon woman gestured toward Tacenda. What should I do with the child? Tacenda's breath caught. She could still breathe, though her eyes were frozen open, staring straight ahead. She could barely make out the man through the washroom doorway as he slumped down in a chair in the bedroom. Have her burned or something. 
Maybe feed her to the devils. They've been begging me for live flesh. Eaten alive? Don't imagine it. Don't think. Tessenda tried to focus on her breathing. The demon woman, Miss Highwater, leaned against the washroom doorway, arms folded. She looks like she's been through hell. And not the nice parts, either. There are nice parts of hell. Depends on how hot you like your magma. Look at that bloody dress, ripped and covered in dirt. Doesn't something about her strike you as odd? Dirty and bloody. Isn't that how peasants normally look? Miss Highwater glanced over her shoulder. I don't keep up on local fashions. I know they're very fond of buckles and collars. I swear, I saw a fellow the other day with a collar so high his hat rested on it rather than touching his head. Davriel, I'm being serious. I am too. He had buckles on his arms. The man held up his left arm, gesturing incredulously. Like just wrapping around his upper arm. No purpose at all. I think the people are worried that their clothing will run off if it's not strapped in place. Tessenda bore the exchange in silence. Their conversation was odd, but also so dismissive. She really wasn't anything more than an inconvenience to them, was she? Still, the longer they spent arguing, the longer it would take for them to feed Tessenda to the devils. She couldn't help imagining the experience, lying immobile as the creatures fought over her as they had the apples. Until finally, they started to feast upon her flesh, the pain sharp and real, though she would be unable to scream. Breathe. Just focus on breathing. Deep breath in, deep breath out. Even her lips were frozen, her tongue and throat as if stone, but perhaps with effort. She drew in a deep breath and pushed out a soft but pure humming note. Her vial responded, strings vibrating in harmony. The man of the manor stood up in a sharp motion. Warding song? Sing the warding song! She tried, but all her effort amounted to nothing more than a quiet hum, and it didn't seem to bother the demon or her master. <sighs> Send for Crunchnaw. We'll have him bind the assassin, then make her explain who sent her. Davriel Kane, the man of the manor, was growing very tired of people trying to murder him. What was the point of moving to a far-off backwater if people were just going to bother you anyway? Davriel had made reaching him extremely difficult, but these self-righteous questing types seemed to consider it an extra challenge. The entity spoke up from the back of Davriel's mind. You will not have these worries once you use me. Once we are confident in our power, no simple adventurer will ever think to challenge us. Davriel ignored the voice. Chatting with the entity was rarely productive. So long as it healed him from his wounds, Davriel didn't care what promises it whispered. He settled back in his seat as Crunchnar arrived. The tall, horned creature would, to any normal person, have simply been a demon. That, of course, was far too pedestrian a term. 
Diabolist connoisseurs knew that demons came in hundreds of strains, and one never properly used the term breed or bloodline for demons, as they were normally created fully formed from magic rather than being born. Crunchnar, for example, was a Hartmert demon, a strain of tall, muscular demon with no hair, inhuman features, and horns that swept back along the head, almost like a mane. A rare, wingless strain, Hartmerts were hardy, quick to heal, and tended to be skilled combatants. Indeed, Crunchnar wore warrior's leathers and bore a pair of wicked swords strapped to his waist. The demon was dumb as a stump. Fortunately, he was as sturdy as one, too. At some instructions from Miss Highwater, Crunchnar squeezed into the washroom and picked up the little assassin girl, and then carried her out into the bedroom. He took the vial off her back, and then placed her in a chair opposite Davriel. The demon frowned as the girl's stiff, frozen shape didn't conform to the seat. Miss Highwater was correct. This girl was different from the other would-be heroes who came to kill Davriel. She was so young. Fourteen, fifteen at most. Had the church run out of able-bodied adults to send to their deaths? Instead of the usual gear of spiky weapons and too many buckles, the child wore peasant clothing, tattered, bloodied, ashen. She looked half-starved with deep, dark circles under her eyes. Miss Highwater stepped up beside him, cocking an eyebrow as Crunchnar tried to force the girl to sit down, which Davriel's binding spell still prevented. The demon then grumbled to himself, doing his best to tie her into the seat. Davriel clapped, summoning a small, red-skinned devil from the serving room. It trotted in, carrying a tray that was too big for it, set precariously with a bottle of fine glurzer, a local vintage. The sweetly aromatic wine tickled Davriel's nose as he poured himself a cup. The creature jabbered at him in the clipped local devil tongue. No, not yet, he sipped his wine. The creature snarled in annoyance, then held up a much smaller cup, which Davriel filled with wine. The devil wobbled off, carrying the tray while trying to drink its wine. It had better not drop that glurzer. Devils made terrible servants, but one worked with what one had. At least they were cheap and easy to fool. You will have so much more once you seize it. Crunchnar finally stepped back, folding oversized arms. There. Done. He'd tied the girl by her waist, feet, and neck to the chair, though she was still stiff as a board, and so rested against the seat at an angle. Good enough. Though you should probably stay here when I release the binding, just in case. You fear such a tiny thing? Tiny things can still be very dangerous, Crunchnar. A knife, for example. Or your brain, Crunchnar. Crunchnar folded his arms, glaring at her. You think to insult me, but I know that deep down inside, you truly fear me. Oh, trust me, Crunchnar. You'll find there's nothing I fear more than stupidity. He stalked forward, feet thumping on the floor. He drew up close to Miss Highwater, looming over her. 
I will destroy you once I have claimed his soul. You grow weak and lazy like him. Ledgers and figures, bah! When was the last time you claimed the soul of a man? I tried to claim yours the other night, but I found only the soul of a mouse, which I should have anticipated, considering- Enough, both of you. They shared glares, but stilled. Davriel laced his fingers before himself, studying the peasant girl. She had stopped singing, but that tune. It had an odd strength to it, a power he hadn't expected. Was that the bog's touch on her? She was undoubtedly from the approaches, likely Verlassen. He cancelled the binding. The young woman immediately relaxed in her seat, gasping. And then she wrapped her arms around herself and shivered, as if cold. Binding wards often had that effect. Her long brown hair covered much of her face as she glared at him. Crunchnar's ropes, now slack, didn't do much. They tied her feet to the chair, but didn't prevent her from moving her arms or head. Be on with it, monster! Do not play with me! Kill me! Do you have a preference? Axe to the neck? Cooked in the ovens? Devils have been suggested, but I'm worried you're too lean to provide proper nutrition. You mock me! He pushed out of his chair and began pacing. I'm merely frustrated. What is wrong with you villagers? Isn't your life terrible enough already with those spirits and beasts and whatnot out in the forest? Do you have to come up here and incite my wrath as well? The girl huddled down in her chair. All I want is to be left alone. All you need to do is your job. See that I'm provided with tea. And shirts. Miss Highwater went down her ledger. And food, and occasional taxes, and furniture, and rugs. And, well, yes, some few offerings befitting my station. But it's not that bad. A relationship equally beneficial to everyone involved. I get a quiet, secluded place to go about my life. You get a lord who doesn't drink your blood or feast on the flesh of virgins at every full moon. I would think that on Innistrad, having a lord who mostly ignores you would be quite the novelty. So what did Verlossen Village do to offend you? Were your socks made too tight? Did one of the apples have a worm? What insignificant offense caused you to finally notice us? Bah! I don't care about you. Yet you keep sending these hunters to come attack me. How many in the last two weeks, Miss Highwater? Four? She flipped a page in the ledger. Four groups, with an average of three Cathars or hunters in each one. Popping out of my cellar, or breaking down my front door. Those twins with the trident smashed my dining room window. The one made of antique stained glass. Someone keeps telling them of me, and so they keep coming to slay me. It's growing severely inconvenient. What can I do to get you villagers to shut up? That should not be a problem. Now that you have murdered us all. Yes, well that's not... Wait. Murdered us all? Why feign ignorance? We all know what you've done. You were spotted when you took my parents from their wagon ten days ago. Then your geists took those merchants, and others who strayed too close to the edge of the village. My sister two days ago. And then... Today... 
She closed her eyes. They're all gone. All but me. Dead and cold with marble eyes. I held my sister after they found her. And she was... limp. Like a sack of grain from the cellar. She was apprenticing to be a priest, but she died like the rest. The bog will have the bodies of my people, but it will not feast, for their souls are gone. Taken. Like the heat stolen straight from the fire, leaving only ash. Devriel looked toward Miss Highwater, who cocked her head. All of them. As in everyone in Verlassen Village? The girl nodded. Verlassen? Is that the one where... You get your dust, Willow Tea? Yes. Blast. The tea, a mild sedative, was his favorite. He needed it to sleep on days when memories grew too weighty for him. It's also where the shirt tailors live. Lived. I guess we anticipated that problem then. Every villager? Every one of them? She nodded. Hellfire! Do you know how long it takes to replace those things? Sixteen years at least before they're productive. You do have two more villages, so I suppose it could be worse. Verlossen was my favorite. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference if your life depended on it. But this is going to have a serious impact on your income and the next season's profit and loss ledgers. She made a note. Also, we're out of tea. Disaster. He slumped back into his chair. Girl. It has been ten days since the first of these deaths. My parents. You knew them. They made your shirts. But you already know of their deaths. You killed them. Of course I didn't. Murdering villagers? Myself? That sounds like an awful lot of work. I have people. Well, beings that are vaguely shaped like people. To do that sort of thing for me. Davriel rubbed his forehead. No wonder the hunters had been bothering him so much lately. Nothing hooked would-be heroes more than news of a mysterious lord abusing his peasants. Hellfire. He was supposed to have been able to fade away into obscurity here. He'd moved here years ago, and then finally settled on the approaches as the most remote location on an already remote plane. Here, consorting with demons was seen as only a minor oddity. So he'd thought. What? What if news of this spread to the wrong ears? The ones listening for stories about a man with his description, a man who could steal spells from the minds of others. Time grows short. They will find you, and they will destroy you. We must gather up power and prepare. I will be fine. I don't need you. A lie. I can read your thoughts. You know that someday you will need me again. For a moment, Davriel smelled smoke, heard screams. For a moment, he stood before cowering masses and was worshipped. These memories were somehow more real than they should be. 
The entity could play with his senses, but he asserted his will and forced away its touch, banishing the sensations. Miss Highwater? Yes? Do we still have the soul of that knight who attacked me a few days ago? The one from whom I stole that binding I used on the girl? Uh, you promised to give the knight's soul to the devils? If they were good. Have they been good? They're devils. Of course they haven't been good. Right then. Fetch the soul for me. Oh, and a head, if we've got one lying around. Tessenda tested her bonds. They were slack, and she thought she could even get out of the ones wrapping her feet. But dared she run? What would that accomplish? Once Miss Highwater returned from giving orders outside the room, the man asked her if Verlossen Village was... The one with the angry man who smelled of dishwater? That might have meant Mayor Gertlin of Hremig's Bridge? In any case, this Davriel pretended to be completely unaware of what had happened to her people, her family, her entire world. What was the purpose of the subterfuge? Who knows what strange machinations inhabit the brain of such a creature? Perhaps he just wants to torture me with uncertainty. She wiggled one foot, slipping it free of her ropes. Should she try attacking again? Foolishness. She obviously couldn't harm Davriel with something as simple as an ice pick. Maybe she should try the warding song? She decided to wait. Soon another demon entered the bedroom. About her height, it was twisted and hunched over, and had features that vaguely reminded her of a hairless dog's snout. Unlike the other two, it had black wings jutting out of its back, though they were gnarled and withered. The demon slunk over to Davriel, carrying a bag in one hand, a cloth-wrapped object in the other. Finally. Davriel rose and pulled over a small end table. Right here, Brerig. The hunched-over demon set the object on the table, and the cloth slipped off it, revealing a large, squat mason jar with a glowing light pulsing inside. Excellent. Riddle, master? The demon, Brerig, smiled with a wide mouth full of too many teeth. Fine. Was it a farmer? Nope, afraid not. Oh, well. Rarig sighed and pulled something from the sack. A human man's head held by the hair. Tessendev immediately felt sick. The head was preserved with some kind of metal plate on the bottom. The skin was pale and bloodless, but not rotting. She tasted bile, but forced herself to swallow and breathe deeply. Just another corpse. She'd seen... Seen too many of those already today. Davriel took the head and screwed it onto the glowing glass jar, affixing the two. Brerig shuffled over to the wall, where he shooed away a few of the red-skinned devils. Miss Highwater inspected the jar, her ledger under her arm, while Crunchnar stood near the doorway and slid a knife from his belt, eyeing Tessenda. Davriel fiddled with the jar, flipping something on the bottom while muttering something that sounded like an incantation. And then, when he set it down, the light from the jar faded, and the head on top quivered. The lips began moving, eyes lethargically opening and looking one way, then the next. 
You're a stitcher? Do not insult me, young woman. A ghoul caller, then? A, a necromancer? Davriel stood up and spun, pointing toward her. I've been patient with you so far. Do not test me. Jacinda shrank back into the chair. Stabbing him had only seemed to annoy him, but this... This he actually found insulting. I am a diabolist, a demonologist, a scholar. My study takes skill, effort, and acumen. Necromancy is a fool's art practiced by failed butchers who think they're being clever just because they brilliantly notice that sometimes corpses don't stay dead. He snapped his fingers in front of the head's eyes, drawing its attention. He moved his finger back and forth, and the eyes tracked it. Have you ever taken note of the types of people who end up practicing necromancy? The art attracts the unhinged, the unintelligent, and the unkempt. Far too many of them have overinflated opinions of their own wicked schemes, believing that they're rebellious and self-empowered simply because they've trained themselves to look at a dead body without getting sick. Never mind that corpses make for terrible servants. The upfront work is a nightmare, and then the maintenance, the stench, all for a servant who is even dumber than Crunchnar. Crunchnar growled softly at that. Descenda slipped her other foot free. Davriel wasn't watching. He was using a syringe from the bag to inject the head with some kind of green liquid. But you are working with a corpse right now. This? This is barely even magic. This is merely a means to an end. He finished the injection, and the head focused on him more deliberately, then parted its lips. Do you remember your name? Jagrath. Its lips moved, though the sound seemed to come from the metal plate that connected it to the jar. Jagrath of Thraben. Cathar, official church warrior and self-styled hunter of evil. He had quite the reputation for honor by my sources. I met him. It wasn't his head, but this man, this soul, had come through Verlossen a few days ago, after hearing of her parents' deaths. His voice had been deep and confident. She'd imagined him as a tall, broad-chested man. Willia had been quite taken with him. That had been before... before she'd... I came to kill you. Man of the manor, what have you done to me? Just a few improvements. How does it feel? Cold. As if my soul had been frozen in the highest mountain ice, and locked in a darkness so deep, even the sun would be swallowed there. Perfect. That's the preservation liquid doing its work. He tapped the head lightly on the cheek. Thank you for the binding spell you let me leech from your brain. It proved helpful not half an hour ago. You monster! What you have done to me is an abomination! Moral injustice! Technically, I'm the legal authority in this region, and you did try to murder me in my sleep. So I'd say that what I've done to you is both moral and just. But let's make a deal. Answer a few questions for me, and I'll promise to let your spirit go. I am not going to help you bring terror and pain to any other's fiend. Ah, but look at the poor girl in that chair. Davriel gestured toward Tessenda. 
Her entire village has been killed, their souls stolen from their bodies in the night by some mysterious terror. It was during the day. And it's not mysterious. You know what happened. You did it! The head fixated on her, and the features softened to sympathetic. Ah, child. I tried, and I failed. It is as I feared then. A monster like this one is rarely sated with a few murders. Once he has his thirst for blood, he returns again and again. Tassenda shivered. I do get quite thirsty. Usually I opt for a nice red wine, but after an extremely hard day, nothing hits the spot like a cup filled with the warm blood of an innocent. The head's eyes turned, looking up at him. I bathe in it, you know. Just like the stories say. Never mind how impractical that sounds, the clotting, the staining. Really, just go with it. But blast, you all keep finding out about my nefarious nocturnal locations. What I need to know is how. How did you find me out? Those at the Priory told me what you had been doing. They explained about the souls you'd taken. Who at the Priory? The Prioress herself. This made Davriel harden for some reason, his lips drawing to a line. Everyone knows what you've been up to. You left the bodies, the souls, removed. But how did you know it was me? I'm not native to the locale. But even my few years here have taught me that you don't lack for threats upon human lives. Why assume I was behind it? I've already told you I- My sister saw you. She watched as you took my parents ten days ago. After that, when you took the souls of those merchants traveling between villages, a priest saw you. Then you claimed Willia in the fields, likely angry she'd escaped you before. You cannot pretend innocence here, monster. You are distinctive in your cloak and mask. My cloak and mask? The ones you wear when visiting the village. My sister saw you clearly. She saw someone in my cloak and mask. The cloak and mask I specifically wear to obfuscate my features so that my real self is unrecognizable. Nobody saw my face, correct? Well... Technically, the mask and cloak were what Willia had said she'd seen, but everyone knew the man of the manor was a malevolent figure who consorted with demons. Everyone knew that. She looked again at Davriel with his fluffy shirt, thin mustache, and violet cravat, with his strange mix of arcane knowledge and remarkable obliviousness. Hellfire. Someone's been imitating me. A difficult task. Think of the sheer number of naps they'd have to take. Davriel eyed her. Admit it, Dav. It would require a true master of imitation to impersonate you. Most people would accidentally do something relevant or useful, and that would destroy the entire illusion. Go check for my cloak and mask. Release me. I have answered your questions. I did not specify a date or time. I only said that I would release you, and I will, eventually. Technicalities, 
As far as I'm concerned, technicalities are all that matter. But you- Davriel twisted something on the jar's top and the head went slack, jaw drooping, eyes rolling to the side. The jar underneath filled again with glowing light. Miss Highwater ruffled through a wardrobe on the side of the room. She pulled out a deep, black cloak with a distinctive ghostly tattered bottom, like the frayed spirit of a haunting geist. The golden mask was in a demonic shape with large, dark eyes, sinuous lines, and a gruesome mouth reminiscent of a jaw with the skin removed. It was what the man wore when he went in public. Well, your outfit is still here, so the imitator fashioned their own copy. But why? What reason would someone have to imitate you? Miss Highwater? How many times did you say I've been assaulted in the last few weeks? Four. Five, if you count the girl, I suppose. Davriel threw himself into his chair, rubbing his forehead. Oh, what a pain. Someone is having fun out there than pinning the blame on me. How am I supposed to get any work done? Work? What work? Mostly reminding you to do things. I don't want you slacking. I wrote myself a note about it the other day. He patted his pocket, and then reached over to his suit coat and removed a piece of paper, which was bloodied from his stab wound. He gave Tessenda a flat stare. You... you really didn't do it, did you? You didn't kill my village. Hellfire, no! Why would I ruin the village that provides my tea? Even if your harvest has been a bit late this year. We've been busy. Being murdered. What a mess. I can't have someone imitating me. Miss Highwater, send Crunchnar and, say, Verminal to look into who might have done this and see if we can get more peasants. Maybe promise no whippings for the first two years. See if that attracts any settlers? You're going to send the demons? You're not even going to go yourself? I'm too busy. He has to take his evening nap. Then a nightcap. Then sleep. Then his morning nap. Tessenda gaped at Davriel, who leaned back in his chair. Perhaps he hadn't killed the people of her village, but someone had been leading the whispers when they attacked. She'd heard their footsteps, and someone had been seen wearing Davriel's cloak and mask. The murderer and the geist that served them was still at large. Verlossen wasn't the only village in the region. There were two more along with the people of the Priory. Hundreds more souls were in danger, and Davriel wasn't even going to leave his manor? Descenda felt her anger rising again. Maybe this man hadn't killed her friends and family himself, but his incompetent and selfish rule shared equal blame for their deaths. Descenda stood up, pulling herself from her ropes. Crunchnar, who had been watching for this, stepped in front of the doorway to cut off her escape. But Descenda didn't try to flee. She leaped forward, snatching the glowing jar off the table near Davriel, and then, without a second thought, smashed it against the floor, breaking it and causing the head to roll away. The brilliant light of the soul inside seeped free, and she heard a distinctive sigh as the imprisoned Cathar escaped his torment. 
a light floated up, forming vaguely into the shape of the man, just as she'd imagined him, with that square jaw and that noble air, swathed in the rugged coat of a hunter. Admittedly, the collar was a little much. Thank you. Thank you. A voice, as if blown by the wind, moved through the room. Davriel watched with an expression she couldn't read. Surprise? Horror at what she'd done to his prize? Technicalities or not, you should make good on your word. I'm sure a true necromancer would know to- Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To send a hesitated then turned toward the spirit, which, instead of dissipating as she'd assumed, was growing brighter. Its eyes grew larger as they darkened to pits, distorting the face. Its fingers stretched longer, and it adopted a wicked, lopsided grin. Cathar Jagrath? The thing struck, slashing razor-sharp fingers through her forearm, causing her not to bleed, but to feel an intense, frozen pain. She gasped and stumbled back. The thing, gone mad, lunged for Davriel. Crunchnar arrived first. The oversized demon blocked the spirit, touching it as if it were physical, and slammed it backward. The spirit let out an angry wail that made Tacinda's ears hurt, and she clammed her hands on them, crying out. The spirit seemed to be able to decide whether it was physical or not, for though Crunchnar could touch it at first, the spirit faded and flowed away fluttering curtains. It kept repeating a bastardized version, thank you, over and over again, each somehow more wrong than the one before. The spirit flowed toward Davriel, darkening and becoming less transparent. Crunchnar whipped a sword from its sheath, and the weapon's faint glow of power made the spirit hesitate. And then Davriel, Red smoke filling his eyes and turning them crimson, stood and released a jet of flame from his hands, the heat so intense that Tessenda screamed. The spirit screeched in pine from the center of the immolation, then pulled in on itself, shriveling before burning away. It left a singed and blackened scar on the rug in the bookcase behind. Tessenda gawked, cradling her arm, which still felt icy where she'd been slashed. The red smoke faded from Davriel's eyes. He winced, as if using the magic had caused him pain. He rubbed his temples, then shook his head. Well, that was exciting. Thank you, Crunchnar, for the timely intervention. I will have your soul, dear Bolist. I have not forgotten our terms. Davriel stepped over and kicked at the burned rug. Did the rugmakers live in your village? Master Gritich and her family. Yes. Damn. I'll have you know, girl, that I leached that fire spell from the mind of a particularly dangerous pyromancer. I'd been saving it for an emergency. The Cathar. He attacked me. Loose spirits, geists as you call them, can be dangerous and unpredictable. Most forget themselves when separated from their bodies, retaining only the faintest hints of memory. What you did was both foolish 
and reckless. I'm sorry. She looked away from the scarred rug, tucking her arm against her chest. Great. Glad to hear it. Miss Highwater, see what the girl can tell you about this imposter, then toss her out into the forest. Tell the devils they can have her if she tries to sneak in again. You're not going to check her mind for talents you can leech? The bog stenches all over her. No thank you. I've had enough headaches at the moment. One of the demons, the hunched-over one they'd called Brerig, took Descenda by the arm and began to lead her from the room. His skin was surprisingly soft. Descender resisted, trying to pull out of the demon's grip. Wait! My vial! Behind them, a devil was plucking at the instrument. Davriel waved with an offhand gesture, so the devil scrambled over and delivered him the vial. I... please. It's all I have left. It's a fine instrument. Might sell for enough to buy a new rug. But cooperate with Miss Highwater, tell her everything you know of this imposter, and I'll let you keep it. Did you see this cloak and mask yourself? No. I am... blind during the days. The bog's blessing has also left me cursed. Payment for the songs it gives. Davriel sighed, and then made a shooing motion. Brerig towed Tessenda by the arm toward the doorway. Come, 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 and I will tell you a riddle. They are fun. Come. She resisted a moment longer, and then, as Miss Highwater joined them, finally relented to Brerig's surprisingly gentle prodding. What? What was her fate now? She had escaped death three times over tonight. The Whispers, the Bog, the Man of the Manor. You didn't see the imposter. What did you see? Miss Highwater poised a dark pin above her ledger as she walked. Just bodies. So many bodies. I should live among them. I belong in a grave. Did they lose the color of their skin? After they were taken, did they go pale or ashen? Descenda paused beside the doorway, and the demons didn't force her to continue. They... they looked just like they did in life. Only blue around the lips. Their limbs went rigid and they stayed stiff for a few hours. Strangely stiff, before finally going limp. Suspended animation following a direct soul siphon. Probably the result of some aspiring necromancer harvesting souls. Well, it could be worse. If Miss Highwater can find the souls, I suppose we could restore them before the bodies rot. Then I wouldn't have to mail order a new village. Tessenda felt a jolt go through her. And he just said, Restore them! As in bring them back to life! Possibly. I'd have to see the bodies to be certain. But from the description, this state might be reversible. And that would certainly be easier than growing peasants the traditional way. Though admittedly not as much fun. Come, let's stop bothering Lord Kane. The demon Brerig pulled to send his arm, but something deep within her, something she had assumed shriveled and lifeless, stirred. Bring them back? She could bring them back? How long? How long do we have? Are you still here? How long? 
Crunchnar stepped forward, pushing aside Miss Highwater, soared out and leveled toward Tessenda. So Tessenda began singing. Though she intended to start small, that hope, that warmth, exploded from her in a pure, solitary, forceful note. Like the peal of a morning bell, it was the first note of the warding song. The demons and devils in the room cried out in pain, a sharp and garish harmony. Brerick whimpered, and Miss Highwater backed away, hands to her ears. Even Crunchnar, seven feet tall with terrible horns, stumbled and wavered. The devils scattered with collective screams of agony. Her vial, still in Davriel's hands, played the same note, a demanding, relentless tone. Davriel let go of the instrument, and then cocked his head as it hovered in front of him. That happened sometimes. Her drums had done the same. She continued the song, each note louder than the one before. The three demons cowered down, groaning in agony, holding their heads. Davriel, however, just pushed the floating instrument aside with one finger, and then stood up with a deliberate motion. The song didn't affect Davriel. He... he really was human. As with many protection magics, people were immune. Davriel strode up to Descenda, who let her song die off. Her vial floated down to the ground before Davriel's chair, and the three demons slumped to the floor. The cries of the devils still echoed in the other rooms. The Bog's Ward. A nice demonstration. Whatever took the people of your village was obviously frightened of you, which is why you're still alive. How long? How long will my people last? If I could find their souls... Depends. Most violent soul harvesting leaves the subject dead immediately, often with physical wounds, exploding chests, and all that drama. But what you described sounds more like the aftermath of involuntary projection, where the soul is coaxed away from the body. That often sends the body into a brief catatonic hibernation. How? Two days, maybe three. After that, the soul won't recognize the body as its own, and the body will have begun to decompose regardless. So her parents, her parents were truly gone dead ten days ago and reclaimed by the bog. But her sister, Willia, lay on a slab at the Priory. She hadn't been returned to the bog because she worshipped the angel. Could she be saved? And Joan the woodcutter, little Aaron and Victor. You have to help them. You are their lord. Davriel shrugged. If you don't, I will... I... <laughs> I'm amused to hear this threat. I will see that you never get to take another nap. You'll find that I... What? I'll travel to Thraben. I'll go into every church and I'll sing to them of the necromancer of the approaches. I can sing more than the warding song. I have other songs with other emotions. I'll make them hate you. Terrible Lord Davriel Kane, the man who took the souls of an entire village. You wouldn't dare. I'll break down in tears before every would-be knight, questing hero, and hunter wanting to make a name for themselves. 
I'll send an endless stream of self-righteous champions to the approaches until they clog the bridges in their eagerness to come and bother you. I could just kill you, you realize. <laughs> and my soul will continue as a mournful ghost. The girl of the forests whose entire family was taken by Davriel of the Approaches. I'll sing ballads, dead or alive, I'll send them to annoy you. And, and I'll draw the maps and pictures of your face and... Enough, girl. I doubt you would have the willpower to continue this silly endeavor as a geist. Descenda bit her lip. In defiance of his words, Davriel looked worried. Annoyed, really, but it seemed with this man, that was basically the best she could hope for. You know they'll come for you. Even if you kill me. An entire village? Rumors will spread. Decades from now, people will still be trying to slay you. You're probably right that I couldn't do much to inspire more. <laughs> but I doubt I'd need to. Think about the inconvenience this will cause. Yet... One evening of mild work could prevent all of that. Not much effort. Just come look at the bodies of the fallen and try to figure out what might have taken their souls. You make a strangely persuasive argument, child. Miss Highwater, are you well? The female demon had pulled herself up off the ground and was shaking her head, still seemingly stunned by the effects of the warding curse. Well enough, I guess. Then, prepare my carriage. Let us visit this village. Perhaps we can find some tea they neglected to deliver. Thank you for listening to this production of Voice of All. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you not just for the voices of the characters, but also to keep us going and growing. If you enjoyed what you heard, please support us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or following us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, or just plain sharing with your friends. You can also support us financially on Patreon for exclusive perks. Children of the Nameless was written by Brandon Sanderson. The podcast was produced and edited by Gin Dokeshi, with sound editing by Liz Jones, Grace Noir, Knock Shade, and Christina Edelman. This week's story featured the voice talents of Madison Dabbs, Christina Edelman, Jared Raman, Emily Doms, Ozzy Snedden, Cameron Scott Saxon Niewoner, Dee Dee Foyer, Paul Warren, Benjamin Mackinson, Creton, and Liam Wilson. Voice of All is unofficial fan content, permitted under the Wizards of the Coast fan content policy. Magic the Gathering is copyright, Wizards of the Coast. Thanks so much for listening. Y'all have a great day.